Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Patrick Cummins, Executive Director of the Connecticut Audubon Society. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Aaron. So the Audubon Society has a footprint really across Connecticut. Tell us about your work. Sure. Uh, We are a statewide conservation organization. We were founded in 1898, one of the first um, statewide conservation organizations in the state. Uh, We are independent, uh, a statewide Audubon Society, much like Mass Audubon or Rhode Island Audubon Society. Um, We are not affiliated directly with the National Audubon Society, but we work uh, very closely with them as, as, as a partner um, on issues that we have in common. We manage about 3,200 acres of sanctuaries in the state, uh, scattered uh, all all corners of the state, from Goshen to Sherman, down to Fairfield and Westport. We also have uh, a nice facility up in Pomfret, beautiful piece of land in Pomfret, Montville, um, and we also have a small island over in Stonington. So from nearly all four corners of the state that we have property. When you think about the Audubon Society, you probably think first and foremost about bird watching, but you're more than that. You're also, you have a lot to do with conservation. Yes, uh, we conserve birds, other wildlife, and their habitat. And um, it's, it's all... It's all interconnected. Uh, everything eats something else. So it's it, it's not just a food chain out there. It's a food web. And the more pieces of the north strands of that web you cut, uh, the less robust the ecosystem is. But we're interested in birds, of course. Uh, Audubon, you think of birds. But we are interested in things like turtles and tiger beetles and butterflies as well, uh, not just because they're important and tied to the birds, but for their own right and and, and for the natural biodiversity of the state. How would you say Connecticut is as a habitat for wildlife? It is actually an amazing place for how many people that live here. Uh, Connecticut has um, actually what's considered the highest percentage of what we call the urban wildlife interface. That is where you have good habitat for wildlife coupled with and close to where people live. So very few places in the world have so much great habitat and so much great wildlife so close to so many people and where we live. I'm guessing that could also pose issues with maybe development encroaching on those wildlife areas. Yeah, absolutely. I won't say that the Connecticut doesn't have its problems. We have uh, certain species that are are not doing well in Connecticut. Our our, our grassland species, for example, uh, upland sandpiper and grasshopper sparrow, they've really declined quite a bit. Um, We have some worries about forest health for the future because our forests have been fragmented and and chopped up into smaller and smaller pieces. But um, still, there are some amazing 
resources here. There's some beautiful forest blocks. I was just up in Litchfield County uh, a few weeks ago uh, uh, examining some of the the wonderful forest blocks up in that part of the state. Uh, we still have some grasslands, including our palm frit uh, sanctuary, and which is about 700 acres, uh, our Bafflin Sanctuary in Palm frit. Uh, we have some amazing uh, resources along the coast, our beaches, uh, places like Long Beach West, Milford Point, where we also have a, an environmental education facility, just amazing places. The Lower Connecticut River uh, has, uh, um, it's one of the few large rivers that doesn't have a big development at its mouth. So it's, it's natural resources are very much intact. And our tidal wetlands are, are, are globally important as well. And Long Island Sound itself is just a gem. In fact, you recently opened a section of a new sanctuary in Sherman. Yes, we're very thrilled about that. That's our Deer Pond Farm Sanctuary. It's 835 acres, and it was the former estate of Walter and Kathy Riston. And they wanted to see that this property that they love so much was cared for in perpetuity and, and, and kept as a spectacular place forever for the people of Connecticut. And they actually have some property in New York, had some property in New York, which is now ours. And we're opening the New York portion of our sanctuary. Uh, so it's, it, it's about doubling in size. And we have uh, miles and miles of trails there. I think it's something like 14 miles of trails um, and some beautiful woodland habitat. Their house where they used to live were in the process of converting that into a nature center, but the grounds are sort of park-like. They wanted to keep it similar to how they managed it. Uh, but then you, the further you get out, the more into the wilderness, per se, you get. And we're working on trying to improve habitat there for pollinators in particular, which also is going to benefit the birds. So we're putting in pollinator meadows. We're putting in a memorial uh, bird garden uh, down in a spot that's already a re really great place for, for birds, uh, which we, we got some funding from the Hollis Declan Memorial Fund to, to, to put that in. And uh, we're putting in native trees and shrubs, trying to create a diversity of structure there so that we'll have more, more variety of habitat to support migrating and nesting birds as well as the insects. What advice do you have for people who want to visit a sanctuary run by the Audubon Society? Yeah, check out our website, which is ctaudubon.org. We also have a Facebook page, Connecticut Audubon Society. And uh, we have... Uh, information about visiting each of our sanctuaries with directions. Soon, stay tuned, we're going to have some new tools for visiting our sanctuaries in the fall. I don't want to give too much away, but there's some exciting things on the horizon that'll make visiting our sanctuaries even easier and more, uh, uh, more enjoyable. Say you have a bird feeder in the backyard and you've always been mildly interested in birds, but you want to take that next step, maybe go out and take some nice photos and be able to identify what you're seeing out there. How do you get involved? Yeah, birding is really becoming much more mainstream. Uh, it's, it's sort of an in thing these days. And um, and it's really no wonder. I mean, we don't have things like lions or tigers or jaguars here in Connecticut, but we do have more than 400 different kinds of birds that have been seen in the state, including some really spectacular ones like bald eagles. Just there was a brown pelican the other day uh, out on Long Island Sound to the little tiny hummingbird. Um, it's a matter of, of really seeing, opening your eyes to see what's out there. If you're not seeing something spectacular, just look a little bit closer. And we have a lot of activities. We have uh, uh, six environmental education facilities around the state's nature centers, per se, including in Sherman, Milford, Fairfield, Glastonbury, Old Lyme, and, and in Pomfret. And uh, 
on our website we have a calendar. It shows shows all the the different bird walks and other uh, activities that we have. Getting out and going with an experienced leader can really help you learn a few birds. And it, there's always more to learn. I mean, there are more than 400 different kinds of birds that have been seen in Connecticut, including some that are kind of tricky to identify. But once you start getting to know your cardinals and your robins and your blue jays, then you know something, oh, this is something different. Oh, and then you learn, oh, this was a, a, an eastern towhee. So that's another bird you know. And eventually you build that library and you start to know how these birds behave, how they look, what time of year you're going to see them. And, and before you know it, you're, you're sort of in tune with your surroundings. And just walking outside of my house, you, know, you can hear a, a, a dozen species of birds uh, if you get to know what their calls are. So the birds are all around us. In mid-June, what sort of activity will people see if they pay attention? Well, it's it's the height of the nesting season. So there, there are birds year-round here. Uh, any walk in the woods, you're going to be hearing the birds singing. Uh, they're, uh, they're sort of setting up their pair bonds. They're, they're defending their territories. They're teaching their young what, what their language is. Um, so using your ears is also important. You're not going to get to know all your songs right away, but when you start hearing sounds, then that gives you a clue as to which direction to look. And so you, you, uh, you know, you hear a chick burr, chick burr, and you're, you're looking up in the trees and eventually you see this brilliant red bird with a, uh, with black wings. That's the, that's the scarlet tanager. And, and they're there, they're, they're, they're spread throughout the woods. They're fairly common in Connecticut, but when people see a, a scarlet tanager for the first time, they're like, Wow, what an amazing bird. I didn't know we had anything like this here. And um, But they are here. They're just kind of, uh, you have to know what they sound like and where to look for them. And often clearings in the woods are a good place to, to look because a lot of birds, you know, there's more insect activity in the, cle- in the clearing. So walking through the deep woods, you don't hear all that much. And then you'll start hearing some, some bird sounds. And uh, it turns out there's a, a tree that fell and, and there's a little bit of opening there and a, a, a little bit more sunlight reaching the, the forest floor and some flowers and some insects. And that's where the birds have come to, to feed. Also, going to the coast uh, can be a great uh, way to see birds. You, you don't need, you know, you don't have to worry about peering into the trees. Uh, you know, there's there's always something interesting going on, and migration actually starts up um, in early July. Uh, migration is sort of an ongoing thing. It's no real migration season. Every month of the year, something is migrating. And as early as, as, as the end of June or early July, we're already starting to get southbound migrants of shorebirds uh, coming down from the Arctic. Things like the um, uh, black-bellied plovers and, and long-billed dowagers. They always start showing up right around then. And the last northbound shorebird migrants are still moving through in the middle of June. So... Uh, once we get into July, things start changing with every cold front. Every cold front, the birds fly, uh, they like to have a tailwind, so it's much easier for them to fly when they have a north, north wind when they're, when they're migrating south. So every cold front that comes through brings a new wave of, of migrating birds, and some of the land birds start moving through in later July into August. By the time you're into September, it's, it's just birdapalooza out there. Are we seeing birds in Connecticut that we haven't seen in the past, and are some wintering here when they used to go south for the winter. Yes, there have been a lot of changes in our distributions of birds. It sort of started with mockingbirds, uh, which came back, came into the state. Uh, it used to be a, a southern bird. We almost never saw them. But in the late 
40s into the 50s, they started moving into our region and still in, in very small numbers. Cardinals as well. Um, they were never seen in Connecticut. Things like tufted titmice, they were also found to the south. And that's continuing to this day. This year, we had an incursion of a species called the summer tanager, also the blue grosbeak, uh, which are typically more southern species that uh, they showed up, uh, perhaps overshot their nesting grounds. But uh, one of these days, though, they will find good nesting habitat up here and, and stay over here. So things, yes, things are moving northwards. Some bird species are actually moving north out of the state. Things like white-throated sparrows are getting much, much harder to find nesting in the state. Things like dark-eyed junco, um, Canada warbler, and um, and also Nashville warblers are much, much harder to find in the state. In the state, Veeries, they project, are that's a type of thrush, that it's a fairly common woodland nesting bird. They project that they'll be gone from the state from, from by the end of the century, just from the changes in temperature and vegetation. Now, you talked about climate change. There's also an issue when it comes to rising sea levels. That's a major issue, uh, both for society and for our uh, ecosystems. Uh, the salt marsh sparrow is a species that nests on a particular type of tidal marsh at, uh, along the coast of Connecticut. We have a fairly high percentage of their global population here in Connecticut. Connecticut is important to salt marsh sparrows, but the species is actually globally endangered. And the reason is because it nests in something called high marsh, which is a marsh that typically only floods a couple of times a month. They arrive here in May. They start nesting, and almost invariably, a spring tide and or a storm comes and washes their nest out. As soon as that spring tide is over with, they all nest in synchronous nesting so that they, they, lie, they lay their eggs as soon as they can after that flood tide. And then it's a race before that next spring tide comes in, before they, their young can get to be strong enough to, to climb up on some taller grass because so they nest directly on the ground. And what we found is that this, that that interval between the spring tides, where that is flooding the high marsh habitat, is getting shorter and shorter, and the birds are having a much harder time reproducing. And they're a fairly short-lived bird, uh, just you know a matter of a few years that they live. So if they can't reproduce for three or four years in a row, it can be a real problem for their population. And uh, some of the studies have, have, have shown that just in the past couple of decades, their, their, their populations have declined uh, precipitously, like in the 70% or more range. You're listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Patrick Cummins. He is executive director of the Connecticut Audubon Society. So what can a small state like Connecticut do to help protect bird species and fight rising sea levels and climate change? Yeah, it's um, it, it can be daunting, but there are, uh, you know, nature is to a degree resilient. And I think that um, if we focus on where we can have the greatest impact it will we'll be able to much much more effectively conserve the wildlife that we're concerned about. One of the projects that we're involved in is something called the Connecticut Bird Atlas Project, and what we're working with the University of Connecticut and the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection to try and identify what areas are most important for what nesting birds. We're sending it. We're using volunteers. We're also utilizing. Uh, interns that will go out and do point counts. And then we use computer modeling to say, all right, well, this area of the state is the most important for wood thrush. This area of the state is most important for cerulean warblers. And then we can do an analysis to say, all right, well, these are the areas that are well protected. These are the areas that should be the highest priority for land protection uh, to protect those species. 
Also, um, there's some legislation pending federally called Recovering America's Wildlife Act, and that would be a real game changer for wildlife conservation. It would take some funding from natural resource extraction offshore and on uh, on um, federal lands that are already that's already happening right now, and it would direct some of the royalties from that to a fund that goes directly back to the states and funds wildlife conservation to implement their state wildlife action plans. So the st- each state would be able to direct how that funding is spent as long as it's going to forward that state wildlife action plan. So that would allow us to have the resources to start thinking outside the box on some of these more complicated issues like climate change. Uh, for example, in, in um, lower Connecticut River, we find that the marshes are keeping up with climate with rising sea levels much faster than they would typically and that's because of the dynamics of the sediment wedge that comes down the Connecticut River and the tidal effects there so there may be some things that that there may be some physics lessons that we could take from studying that system to apply to other marshes to find ways that we can sort of mimic that that rise that that natural rise to keep those tidal marshes above the water and also tidal marshes are incredibly important buffers for things like storm flooding for our communities and very important filters for Long Island Sound which is a, an important economic and uh, ecological resource for Connecticut and um, um, so. If we have the money to study some of these things, we may come up with innovative approaches to to uh, uh, what might be considered vexing problems. You mentioned one example, but how closely do you work with DEEP and the state in general in, in conservation? We work very closely with them uh, and, and with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as well. Um, one example, uh, we work with them and also Audubon, Connecticut, which is the state office of the National Audubon Society, and the Roger Torrey Peterson Institute of Natural History, RTPI. We work on something called the Audubon Alliance for Coastal Waterbirds, and we hire seasonal field techs that go out uh, and essentially act as the eyes and ears of the state uh, wildlife agency. They only have one person full-time along the coast checking on piping plovers, lease turns, putting up string fencing and signage, and putting up exclosures when when the piping plovers um, uh, have their nests. Without our help, and we add another five or six uh, people out there seasonally helping, going out there, monitoring, keeping an eye out. Oh, the string fencing is down at this beach. Somebody's driving an ATV on that beach. This this bird has four eggs. Let's time to go put an, up an exclosure, and then we go and we help them as well. Uh, we also have a, a, a wide network of volunteers that that are uh, uh, further eyes and ears out there monitoring our piping plovers and other re- beach nesting birds. So uh, we work very closely with them. We work also with with them in, on environmental policy issues. Whenever uh, you know we have our legislative agenda, uh, we work very closely with them, saying, "Well, you know, is this something uh, that's important to you?" Uh, we get information. We want to make sure that our policy is is something that we're not going against what the state wants to do um, and that, that it's, it, 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 it's helpful. When you're at the beach and you see one of those string fences, how important is it to honor it? Yeah, it is um, very little of the, of the shore is actually taken up by these things. And we call it psychological fencing. It's basically to keep people out of it. And it is at we work with the landowners, be the municipalities, the state, or or uh, in, in the case of uh, Grizzle Point, uh, the Nature Conservancy owns this property. And they it's all part of a plan where we can provide access to the beach and just close off the more sensitive areas. And we don't like to think of it as as, as excluding people from these areas. Proper management 
means that people can continue to go to these areas and we don't have to worry about someone coming down with some injunction and closing off an area, a, a site entirely. And these birds nest directly on the ground, on the sand, and they rely entirely on camouflage. So if you're up walking in the area where there might be bird nests, you could actually step on the eggs, and 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 you're not going to feel so good if that, that that happens. You're also, you know, if you get up close to it, you're disturbing the birds. They, they tend to, the plovers, um, they tend to do a distraction display. When they feel threatened, they'll get up off their eggs and pretend they have a broken wing and go do this strange dance on the beach where they're trying to lead you away from their nest or their chicks. And the time they're doing that, they're not necessarily keeping a good eye. Other predators could make them more vulnerable to other predators. They're not, uh, you know, they're not um, brooding their eggs so that it could they could get hot or or cold um and when the chicks are out they're busy hiding instead of foraging and 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 with the piper and plover chicks as soon as they hatch they're they're what is known as precocial young they're they're running out and they're actually getting their own food the adults do not feed them at all all the adults do once the chicks hatch is keep an eye out for danger from the moment they hatch they're running around they have to hide themselves they have to um find whatever food to quickly grow. They do all their growing in their first four weeks of life. So um, by creating disturbance uh, to them, you're, you're, you're distracting them from the important tasks that they need uh, to, to successfully fledge. And it is um, that's a species that's considered federally threatened. We've had a lot of success. Uh, we've got about more than 60 pairs of piping plovers along the coast, but that's only really because of the result of these management efforts, and that is putting up the string fencing and increasing awareness of, of sharing the shore with these birds. That's the only reason that they're doing better. Do you have a favorite bird watching spot in Connecticut? Without revealing a, a top secret? Yeah, um, I really, uh, I really enjoy Milford Point. Uh, we have uh, our Milford Point Coastal Center there, and it's it's a great place to visit year round. In the wintertime, it, you can see snowy owls. Uh, there's a lot of waterfowl in the in the Wheeler Marsh behind it. It's about a thousand acre marsh uh, uh, at the mouth of the Housatonic River. It's a great views of Long Island Sound. In um, this time of year, there's migrating shorebirds that nest up in the Arctic, and they stop over, and they winter in South America, some of them. And they stop over there on their way back from South America. They're fattening up for their last leg of their journey all the way up to Hudson Bay and, and to the Arctic Circle. And you can just see this, you know, huge numbers, just, uh, you know, tens of thousands of semi-palmated sandpipers stop over there. And they come up, and they roost on the sandbars at high tide, and they go out in the marshes and, and, and forage and fatten up at low tides. They do this round the clock. They aren't based on the sun cycles, but more on the tide cycles as to when they're active. Then in fall migration, starting in July, they are riding the cold fronts down here, and then they stop over for a few days here in Connecticut, and then they fly. Some of them fly directly nonstop to South America. So it's it's just amazing to see the variety and 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 uh, uh, the. you know the the beauty of these migrating shorebirds, and also it's it's a great place to see uh, migrating land birds as well. Uh, a lot of our uh, songbirds migrate, and and in May, uh, uh, particularly on a foggy morning in May, uh, you can have really great looks at warblers. This this year, there was a yellow throated warbler hanging around our coastal center, and uh, it just got got amazing looks at that. Some uh, someone had a yellow, a, a black billed cuckoo that was stopping over there for a few days and eating caterpillars right out of a tent caterpillar nest uh, right over the parking lot. Uh, so you just you know, but. Even your your yards can have amazing birds, and we have millions of birds that fly over 
both in spring and fall migration each year. And if you have mature oak trees in your neighborhood and you start to learn some of the bird songs, in May, you can go out there and look, and you can find a huge variety. I've actually had about 120 different species of birds that have, uh, I've, I've seen in my little half-acre yard in Meriden over the years. Um, so birds are all around, and any any of your any municipal park, uh, our 3,200 um, 3, acres of, of wildlife sanctuaries throughout, throughout the state, land trust properties, uh, state parks, state forests, there's a lot of great places to go out there and explore nature, and it's not just birds. This time of year, butterflies are really abundant, and uh, you know if you can go to a place that has a lot of nectar and a lot of wildflowers, you can see a great variety of butterflies in in Connecticut. You go to a wetland, you see great varieties of dragonflies, uh, and there are are some turtles that are really high conservation concern in Connecticut. We see our painted turtles and we see our snapping turtles, but there's things like wood turtles and boxed eastern box turtles and spotted turtles. Um, and the great thing about nature is you can go to the same place every day for years and see something new uh, 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 on tomorrow's visit. He is Patrick Cummins, Executive Director of the Connecticut Audubon Society. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.